Boom, put boom, boom, A side, B side, what side are you on? All right, welcome back to A side, B side podcast. So normally we kind of jump in and we we talk about our what we've done this week and what we've watched, and this week is a little different. Yeah, we have a unique opportunity this week, and it doesn't feel like the boxes that I packed are that important when compared to the boxes we're about to unpack. So this week we have a unique opportunity. Adam, you lived in this community. I am still in this community in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And Bowling Green is unique in that it's a big city in a small town. Mm -hmm. So it has enough to where other people come to Bowling Green to do things, but it's still very it's still small enough that you don't get overwhelmed. Yeah. You go to the store and you see people you know. You right. drive down the street and you're at a four-way stop or the stoplight. You look over and you recognize somebody in a car. It's, it's, it's big, small or small, big. It's a bit of both. Right. But also you can go several months without seeing somebody that you know. Mm-hmm. So it is. It's very big, small town or, or small, big town. It's not, it's not a uh, Sam Hunt type of a breakup in a small town and you're you're automatically in the same circles. Right. But you can be very easily. Right. And it's, it's not like I'll break up with you and I could potentially never see you again, which luckily I live in a big town. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so tonight we have an opportunity to talk to a local Bowling Green police officer about a case that happened here and spanned quite a bit of time. Uh, it spanned a time from both before you and I were here while we were both here and you have left and I am still here and that so it's been a, an incredibly long time uh, for this case and that's why I think tonight it'll be unique in that usually we do very different things mm-hmm. like the a side and the b side it's literally like a flip of the tape you get an entirely different perspective but tonight the a side and the b side are both going to be focused on the same thing because of this unique opportunity so that's exciting uh a little scary but when you have a a unique opportunity you have to take it all right so we will be back and i guess it's the b a side ish (laughs) this is just when like you hit record and you get the entire album on one side right 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 we got like the extra long cassette we got like the 120 minute cassette so we got the whole album on one side (laughs) it's the remix album yeah it's a mashup (laughs) all right so we're gonna jump into it here in just a second so this week is, I don't, I don't know if you want to call it a special treat, but we do uh, have a treat for you. And with us, I'm locally here in Bowling Green and joining us from our local Bowling Green police force, Ronnie Ward. How you doing, Ronnie? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Brooke. I have to say thank you so much for joining us on A Side B Side podcast. I've known you for several years because you've, through my other job, and um, you know how I am about true crime, and <laughs> we've spent plenty of time talking about true crime. <laughs> yeah, we we have. We've spent a lot of time talking about uh, new cases, old cases, just really anything that you know that has of any particular interest. Ronnie, when you found out about this podcast through another mutual, well, a coworker of yours, a, mutual, a friend of mine, I was really excited when you were like, "Yeah, absolutely, I would love to come on and talk about some cases." Yeah, so I, I, I look at, at podcasts sort of as the, the swimming pool, and I was trying to figure out 
how to get to the diving board because I, I went in and, uh, you know, it's something that I just didn't feel like I could go out and, and spend the money on on the equipment that I needed. Plus, then what am I going to talk about? Who wants to listen to me talk for, you know, however long it is? So so I was just really just tickled. I think the stars aligned and, and, and uh, you know, it's headed us in the right direction. I've mentioned this before, and I don't know if you've heard this, Ronnie. When I talk, when I look at cases that I'd like to talk about on the podcast, I always try to find something that hasn't been known, known nationwide. And you brought this case to me and I was like, I've never even heard of this. And this is a local case. And I've been here this entire time. So this was, this perfectly fit into uh, everything that we try to do here on the B side of A side, B side podcast. And you brought us the case of Carol Neal. Yes. Yeah, so this this case, uh, you know, ironically enough, this this happened, of course, before I was a police officer, but it was solved and adjudicated while I was a police officer. So the irony in, in all of this is that I knew Carol Neal personally before I was a police officer. Remember when she when she died, and you know, it just it it it, it hurt our family because she was a good family friend. And so being able to see this, uh, I'm not going to give away the ending, but, but being able to see what's happened, you know, was really sort of just a breath of fresh air to our family. Mm-hmm. And I cannot imagine the feeling, the jubilant feeling uh, to, to, to her family. So Carol Neal was born here in Bowling Green on December 26th of 1967. And Carol met Leland Neal Jr. They married I don't know exactly how long they were married, uh, Ronnie. We tried to find that information out. We couldn't really get a hold of it, but we know they had to have been married at least at least five years because they had two beautiful boys. They had uh, Zach and Cole. Zach was five, and Cole fifteen months. Yeah, and uh, you know we we just in researching the case, you know, it, it's all of the things that that you look at and say, well, I don't really think that that was important. I don't think that that was you know, that big of a deal, but, but really it is because all of the little things are what tie this case up into a nice, neat little bow. Right. And, and so you have to, you have to take into consideration when they met, where they met, where he proposed um, to, to really figure out uh, who did this. Right. So like a lot of marriages, Ronnie, you've been married for a while now, Adam, you've been, you were married. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of it happens. I've been married, things sour, people separate. And Carol and Leland separated on July 31st of 1988. And then Carol, like happens, filed for a divorce about a month later. In October, they were able to actually come to a custody agreement about their two boys. And they were scheduled for a court hearing on November 12th of 1998 to set a date for their divorce proceedings. Well, they never made it to that court hearing because on Tuesday, November 11th, Tony Sawyer, who we will get into him, Ronnie, a bit. He arrived at Carol's house about 7.20 in the morning to check on her. Now, the police report, I did, I was able to peruse that. He drove past the house and he saw her car in the driveway. So, so yeah, let me just make one minor correction. It was actually November the 10th and it, okay. uh, and, and yes, he, he drove by her house, but he admittedly said that he drove by her house, uh, every day, uh, just to check on her. 
And uh, that particular day, he noticed her car was still in the driveway. And so when he saw the car in the driveway, that was unusual to him uh, because I guess that every other day that he had driven by her house, her car was not. And so because her car was still there, uh, he pulled in the backed up and pulled in the driveway to check on her. So he gets out and he notices that the back storm door is open. So he enters and he finds Zach and Cole alone in the house. And Zach says to him, I want to show you something. And he leads him into the living room. Now, Ronnie, I've never been at a crime scene. I've watched plenty of movies. I know they use chocolate syrup. I know they use cough syrup. But to see it in real life, Tony said he looked, he saw what looked like massive amounts of cough syrup spilled everywhere. As a police officer, is that normal? Does that sound right? Would the average person look at that and, and think that? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, when you see that scene, um, so we talk about, uh, in, in police work, we talk about the totality of the circumstances. So you see, you see the room as it is. Now, I want you to picture the room. There's a couch in the room. There mm-hmm. are no couch cushions. Mm-hmm. Okay, the couch cushions are gone. Mm-hmm. There's a coffee table in the room, and it is turned over. Mm-hmm. And so then there's a large stain in the floor. There's a large stain on the couch. There is a stain on the ceiling. There's stains on the walls. And so I think that, that a person could look at this and say, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to tell you, hours later, uh, after blood has dried and blood has, has darkened, it, it, it could easily resemble another fluid other than blood. But, but here's what you've got to take into consideration. People are not expecting the worst. People mm-hmm. don't open the door and walk into a room expecting to be met with, with what has happened. Now they've walked into the scene of a murder. Mm-hmm. And so, so in the, in your mind, you have to, you, sometimes your brain just won't let you uh, realize what am I, what am I looking at? Well, and I guess that's exactly what happened to Tony because he thought that cough syrup had spilled everywhere and he spent almost two hours trying to clean up this mess, thinking that Carol was going to return at some point in time. And when she didn't, he called her mom looking for her. And then her mom told him to call 911. That's right. He, um, he spent some time in the house uh, and then realizes she's not coming back or she's, and, and, and what, really is happening is he's also searched the house for the attic every every possible place that that she could be and her car is still there so he he knows that she did not drive away but she's not coming back and then at that point he starts thinking something is is way off here and i need to get some other people involved so he calls her mother and then her mom of course says call 911 yes Yes, it, she tells him right away, and he does. He calls the police right away, and and he he sort of tells what's happening in the scene there, but really he's calling and reporting a missing person because she is not uh, she's not there, and he doesn't realize that something bad may have happened to her. So, Ronnie, I've got a part of that call, and we'll I want to play it, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. When what is your emergency? Uh, what the f- 
What's the problem, sir? Okay, okay. Medical, uh, fire, police, which is it? Uh, police. Okay. Officer. My name is Carol Neal, N-E-A-L. What's the problem there, sir? Okay, I came uh, this morning, I'm a best friend, war friend, and I came over this morning about 20 minutes after 7. Came to the back door. Her car was here. She's usually gone to, uh, to school, and, and I'm taking kids to school and work. Come here. The back door's open. Knock on the door and think she's here, but she's not. So wait a minute. And Zach, the little boy, comes to the back door. I said, Zach, where's mommy? And he said, I don't know. So she was gone when he woke up. So I go on to. He said, Come here. I want to show you something. So I go on to the living room. And on the sofa, there's all kinds of stains. There's red stains. And it looks like cough syrup, but some of it looks like blood. There's a spot on the wall. I've got it off. And I go to the back door here, and it looks like there's blood on the back wall. But this, and another thing. You saw these spots on the wall that look like blood, and you've already cleaned them up? I've because it, there's still some on the... Uh, What's your name? My name is Tony Sawyer, and her mother is on her way over. And you've been there for two hours almost? Well, I thought maybe she might have still talked to her or something on it, but we don't know, but I just talked to her mom, and she said to call the police. Mom's on her way. The door was unlocked. The door was unlocked, and the thing about it, her ex-husband might have come. That's the first thing her mom said. It could have been her ex-husband, which is Lee Hill, might have come and done something. We don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. So her mom said to call, but she's on her way. And I don't know if she's in the place. She said to call the place. I guess she wants the place to come over here. Yes, sir. But you got there at 720. Yes, ma'am. And the, the kids are fine. Both of the little boys are fine. Let's talk about the very first thing he says. He says, I'm her friend or boyfriend. But I've read some articles, and her mom said, I'm not, I didn't really know him. Is that crucial to this? Do we think crucial to this at this point in time? Yes, it is. It is absolutely crucial uh, to how he portrays himself um, because we don't know, obviously we don't know what Carol thinks or what Carol believes uh, her relationship is. We, we later learn mm -hmm. that uh, it's not what, what Tony thought it was. We don't think anyway, from what we were told by other people, uh, Tony would report himself to be a boyfriend, friend, really good friend. Uh, Carol would would beg to differ that that they were not uh, in a romantic relationship to the point that where Tony thought it was, or she would consider Tony her boyfriend. Now he also said, and we've mentioned this, he spent two hours cleaning. That is not good. No, it, it's not good. And you know, there's a we, we call that tampering with physical evidence, and, and so did the court. So uh, that, that's, that's really an issue uh, with the fact that now this crime scene has been altered. Mm -hmm. um, it's been cleaned up. We don't, you know, that in, in, in lots of crime scene, there's, there's more than one person is injured. Uh, sometimes in the, in the harming of one person, another person receives an injury. And so that there's now you have two blood types in a scene and those are what we're that's what we're looking for in, in crime scene processing we're trying to find where is it most likely that the suspect's blood would be while the victim's blood is here and so this crime scene has been changed and, mm -hmm. and forever changed and you can't go back and recreate that because chemicals have been used to clean this up now we mentioned you mentioned the blood and 
the blood was everywhere. I mean, massive amounts of blood, so much blood, Ronnie, that the medical examiner just declared her deceased. There was not even a body, but there was so much blood that it was just stated there's no way that she's still alive. Yes, they, they, would, they would say that um, the, the amount of blood loss, uh, a person could not sustain life having lost this much blood. And so they would presume at that point in time that this person uh, is dead. Now, Tony mentioned in the call, Carol's ex-husband, Leland. Was Leland located? He wasn't right then. He, he uh, we made a phone call uh, or two and was able to, to find him and bring him to Bowling Green. At the point in time that they got in touch with him, uh, he was in Monticello, uh, mm-hmm. which was you know, a couple hours away driving distance from, from Bowling Green. And that was where he was living at the time. So he was home. And so we contacted him and had him come back uh, to Bowling Green to, uh, so we could talk to him. Now, when he came in for an interview, uh, it was noticed that he had some scratches on his face and on parts of his body, but he had, he had an excuse, of course. He, he did on the left side of his face. He had some scratches, um, and, and I say the left side of his face because that's the that's where the pictures are that are are listed in the evidence. And it, it could have had others, uh, but most notably on the left side of his face. And so his explanation for those scratches were that he was scouting for deer uh, near his home, uh, which is very near to the Daniel Boone National Forest. Now, Ronnie... As we've said before, we've had plenty of conversations and we know when a spouse or a significant other gets hurt, it's usually the spouse or that other person, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you you can't, you don't want to narrow the scope, right? To (laughs) to get to that person. Right. But you can't, you can't rule them out right away. So, so you say, yes, that's a person that we absolutely would lean towards is, is because statistically, yes, it, it is, but you can't go so much that that it, it, it takes away the broad view to open your eyes to say, what are the other possibilities to this? Because then that's why you start trying to say, all right, let's, let's get alibis for where all of these folks were. And then we don't just take your word for it. Then we go verify those alibis. And so that's that that is a, a key component, especially to this case, um, is let's let's find out everybody's alibis. And that's one of those things where and and again, I'm coming at it from a very civilian standpoint, but you often hear in TV shows about how you have to let the evidence lead to the assumption as opposed to the assumption, because if you make an assumption that maybe it's the husband, you can probably find circumstantial evidence that reinforces that idea. But if you look at the evidence, you have to trust the evidence first, even though statistically, as you said, it might be a spouse or a partner, the actual evidence is going to lead you to the right place more often than not. Yes. And, and, and so the misnomer in lots of uh, detective stories are that detectives figure out uh, who did something and then that's, that's what they're pursuing is that person. But what, what detectives actually do are they're fact finders. And so uh, when they when they start gathering facts and they put all these facts together, then those facts lead to a person. And then at the, some point in time, they've got to say, there is no other way that this could have happened except for this person did this. And so, uh, you know, and unlike TV, 
we can't just browbeat someone into just because we think it's you. We, right. we can't say, you know, it, it's absolutely you. And, and we are going to, we're going to prosecute you and try you and put you in prison because of what you've done. But, but the reality is, is that the facts have to take you to that point. So this case, of course, this again happened November 10th of 1998. And 1999, police learned that Tony had uh, done something at a local church that was of interest. Yeah. So, so Tony has a construction company and, and police learned that he had poured a concrete slab um, for, for an area church here. And so they immediately thought, you know, that's, that's probably a really good way to dispose of a body is to put it under a slab of concrete. And Jimmy Hoffa. That's see, that's what everybody, that's where everybody's mind goes right away is, well, that's, you know, Jimmy Hoffa is supposedly. And so we know that's a really good way to dispose of the body. Well, what really makes that, that particular concrete slab so important, it was poured the week after Carol Neal disappeared. And so, uh, again, we, we still want to try to figure out who this is, but we, we're running two directions now. We're, we're running towards Tony Sawyer and we're running towards Leland Neal because uh, facts in the case are, are popping up in both mm-hmm. uh, and you can't make your mind up. So right. we, we go to this concrete slab and the first thing they want to do is, is they, they make arrangements with uh, some area cadaver dogs to come and work the the pad to try to determine if in fact there is a body buried there so the the person with the dog says you need to drill holes in the in the pad let's start there and so they do it has to go all the way through the slab into the dirt Uh, they do that the dogs show interest okay so well now let's we take it another step further so they cut uh, a square out of the concrete slab down to the dirt, and again, the dogs show interest in in this, and they're they're saying this so that it's not in the dogs are not 100% indicating that hey, there's a body here. They're just showing interest, so they have to keep pursuing that. So they end up digging up the entire slab um, up to the point that the forensic examiner says that there's nothing here, and, and so we we stop, and then of course the the pads replaced, but there was no human remains found in the concrete. So again, it goes cold until 2003 when hikers find a part of a skull at Parker's Mountain in Daniel Boone National Forest. So the skull collected and it's sent to the medical examiner, Dr. Emily Craig, to determine who the skull belongs to. So she she says automatically it's a woman, probably a, a white female, but she has to do some more testing, correct? Yes, uh, that's right. She said that uh, it was a uh, definitely a female, probably a white female, and that this person died from blunt force trauma to the head. So then they want to get it tested to determine if it is, in fact, Carol Neal's skull. But the McCreary County Medical Examiner's Office doesn't have enough money. So, yes, that, that's we would think in 2020, that's just bizarre, right, that we but but you've got to realize that. Uh, all of this testing is relatively new. It's, it's expensive. Not many people are doing it. It's, you know, this is the newest and greatest and latest. And, and so um, also it's, it's risky. You know, a lot of people at that point in time believe in it like they do now, right now, you, you know, 
it, it's ultimately, this is what's going to solve this case. But then, right. so, so put your mind in that, in that time frame. And uh, so, one, so one quick question. Yeah. For, for those uh, for of us that may not know McCreary County, this is a relatively rural, smaller area, right? Oh, it is. And the, and the towns are small. Uh, this is rugged countryside. This is logging. This is, uh, you know, uh, hikers, deer hunters paradise. This is um, just for, you can look at an overview of the, of the area and it is just rough terrain it's it's forest it's dense it's uh, sparsely populated so that may factor into their budgetary concerns as well that's true yeah you're talking about a tax base of of, of probably not much so yeah there's there are other there's lots of factors that come into the to play that they cannot get this tested because it's uh you know because of the monetary value in in testing so the coroner in Bowling Green steps in and gets the judge executive to agree to pay for the DNA testing, $2,500 it cost at that time. Uh, and then it was, in fact, determined that this skull did belong to Carol Neal. Yeah, it, it didn't take very long for them to, once this the, um, testing was paid for, the testing was done immediately. And uh, yeah, it was determined very quickly that it belonged to Carol Neal. So now we still have to figure out who killed Carol? Yes, and and so the the location uh, again we go back to to the facts of the case. The location just because Leland Neal lives in this area uh, doesn't mean that he did this. I mean, it, it's you know you still have to take facts for what they are. However, this is going to slant your view a little it, right. because it's uh, there's some other things that come into play when we're talking about. Uh, the, the exact area, the Parker's Mountain, is kind of a big deal. Parker's, Parker's Mountain is a special place for Carol and Leland Neal, because that's where Leland proposed. That's right. That's right. So now going back to the facts of the case, Leland lives within 20 miles of this area. This is where he used to hike quite frequently, and this is where he has proposed to Carol. So does this make the police lean even more towards Leland now? It, it, it does. It still doesn't steer them away from where the facts are leading them. But, but, but keep in mind, we're looking for facts. And right now, the facts that are falling in front of you um, just <laughs> are lining up towards Leland. Because think about, remember his alibi. His alibi is that he's He's looking for deer um, while Carol is dying or at the point in time where she is, has gone missing. He's looking for deer and he's looking for deer close to his home. Mm -hmm. And he's hiking that area uh, of Parker's Mountain and, and, that, and, that, and, the, and the forest nearby. So now Leland's car played a part in this investigation. Why, why was Leland's car investigated and what happened? Well, if, you've have, if you're going to remove a body from a scene, now we know at the scene there was, a, uh, there was evidence indicating that, that someone, whoever was bleeding in the living room, uh, went out the door, uh, the, went out the back door. So, so that indicates that the, the person that was bleeding 
that now is presumed dead, uh, was not in that house again, had been taken out the back door. Well, then it would just logically uh, be that so that they would leave from the house and be put into a car. So we would love to have that car. And so the car we know is going to have evidence of if you, I can't say 100% if I found your car uh, with blood in it, I can't say 100% that you killed the person whose blood this is, but but you know something about this because there's that person's blood in your car. So we really, really wanted to find the, that vehicle. So did were you able to find Leland's vehicle? No, see, that's that's another uh, part of this that, that we can't have, we don't have that evidence. And so what we learned later is that a friend of Leland's uh, was renting him some garage space and, and Leland was working on vehicles. And one of the vehicles that he was working on was his own Toyota station wagon. He was putting a new motor in it. And so the motor was in and uh, he was working on some other things, getting it ready to, to be drivable. And then Carol Neal's skull is found. And as soon as Carol Neal's skull is found, that vehicle disappears. And so what we find out later is uh, we, we have to presume that that vehicle was crushed because it does not exist in any record that we can find. So Ronnie, we now have a missing, excuse me, we now have a crushed car, which is not a good thing. We now have uh, scratches that we couldn't prove. We have a skull found near a body, or excuse me, a skull found near a special place close to where Leland lived and right where they, uh, he proposed. So this kind of gets detective, now retired detective Barry Rayleigh thinking, okay, I, I think this is the guy, right? Yeah, it, it does. And, and so at some point in time, you've got to say, okay, we've got, a, we've got enough uh, enough facts to, to, to head us in a direction where we can now let a grand jury or the Commonwealth Attorney's Office determine, yes, well, let's, let's proceed with this. Let, let's move on this case now. And I think there's, uh, not everybody was convinced, uh, you know, and, and not everybody would, would say, yes, now's the time. But, but the person who was investigating the case said, yeah, I think we're there. Once he, told his story, uh, the detective told his story, Detective Riley told his story, then others were like, yeah, that's, yeah, we're, this is the right thing. We need to, we need to move on this. So I've watched way too many episodes of Law and Order, and that is a fictionalized version of this moment. But almost in every one of those episodes, there is that time when in this fictionalized universe, it's the police presenting the case to the district attorney. In reality, how was that decision made? Who, whose final call is it? Yeah, so the so the Commonwealth attorney uh, is a is a heavy player in, in all of this to to make the determination of uh, yes let's let's move this forward because you know the the reality is you can't keep coming back with little pieces uh, you know you, you you can't piece part something uh, completely out not to say that that it can't be done but it's just not uh, the wisest way to handle uh, the finality of the case, especially a case where uh, it's homicide and that you're going to be pursuing murder charges after someone. So it's very serious. There's a lot of, of talking about, is this the right thing if we're headed the right direction? Because we're going to take this 
uh, to the grand jury and, and 12 people who, who don't know any of these people, who don't know all of the facts that, uh, that, that we've talked about tonight and, and even the deeper facts. I mean, this, this case goes on and on and on in pages and pages and pages, but you're, you're going to tell your story to those 12 people and those 12 people are going to decide, yeah, this guy, he did this and, and he needs to answer for this. So what date, what year, what year was this that, because Detective Raley, he, he, he wrote a massive affidavit laying everything out, presented it to the grand jury, and they chose to indict. What year was that? Well, so that's in 2012, late, late of 2012 on into 2013 is when, when all of the, the, the written documents were being produced and the story is being told in chronological order. And, and the facts of this case are being laid out. And, and I'm going to tell you, reading it, it, it doesn't, it, it's not like the, that you read this document and it goes, Leland Neal needs to be tried for the murder of Carol Neal. It's not that. It, it involves a lot of Tony Sawyer. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to say, here's how Tony fits into this puzzle as well, because Leland testified, uh, you know, we talked about that, that Tony was later charged with tampering with physical evidence went to, went to jail for five years for that um but but leland neal testified at his trial and so that's a that's also important because in in the trial they asked leland neal uh about the uh insurance money did you rec- did you benefit from the death of carol neal and he said he did he he got fifty thousand dollars and then also twelve hundred dollars a month in social security benefits for him and the two boys and so that's you know, that's something that that's pertinent to this case as well. So they choose to indict. It goes to the grand jury. The grand jury chooses to indict. And you think, OK, cut and dry. We're going to get him. But Leland is gone. Ah, uh, see, the magical part of all of this is where is Leland Neal now? Because we we'd, we'd like to talk to Leland about this. And so in 2008 uh, is the last time that anybody hears from Leland Neal. Leland is crossing over into Mexico. It's documented in 2008. That's how we know that when it happened. And that's the last time that he is seen or heard from then. So, so that's even before all of this happened. And it was very close to the time that, you know, just a few years after the skull piece was found, uh, the car vanishes, you know, these, these other problems start, this starts falling apart. This case starts unraveling. Uh, very slowly, but it starts unraveling. And so that's the last time he's seen or heard from. And we just don't know what's what took place then. So 2008, he spotted going into Mexico. 2012, this indictment comes. And then you could say a big break happens in 2014. Yeah, the, you know, that's what's so funny about the day in, in 2014. It was in March. And um, I, I remember it. I was, you know, now I'm working at the Bowling Green Police Department, have been for, for seven or eight years and, and know this case exists and followed this case and kept up with what, what, what were reported to be the facts of this case. And no one thinks that Leland Neal is ever going to surface again. He crossed into Mexico in 2008, hadn't been seen since. Here it is, 2014. And we get a phone call from the Mexican officials. And Leland has been involved in a crime in Mexico with two other men. They robbed a place called a Super Six. Mm-hmm. And 
that's just a business uh, there in a, in a small town. And uh, as the, the officials there are investigating that case, Leland's name surfaces because it's told in, in the facts of that case that there was a man with them that spoke English. And so uh, they did some investigating. They figured out that the guy's name was Lee Neal. Once they started looking into who Lee Neal was, they realized this guy has a murder warrant out of the United States. And uh, they find him and they've sort of, we almost got a play by play as to they, they found him in a, uh, where he was staying and um, just pretty much went in and arrested him there and called and said he's in custody. So the Mexican officials arrest him and he's brought back in to, over the border into Texas and he's held at the Harris County Detention Center in Houston. And then the Bowling Green police traveled to Texas. We did. We, we sent two detectives down there just to see because, you, you know, you want to you want to put someone in front of someone else and, and, and talk. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we have to take into consideration that they have to be Mirandized. They have rights and we have to understand that. And we believe in that and, and make sure that they understand exactly what those rights are. So we, we talked to him about that. Um, we wanted to ask him if he wanted to talk to us about the disappearance of and murder of Carol Neal. And, and he did not want to talk about it. So he's brought back to Bowling Green and, of course, charged with murder. Of course, as it is with most cases, it takes a little bit of time to get to trial. But about a month before he's set to go to trial, Leland accepts a plea. Yeah, he does. And and. Uh, you know, this is the this is the part of all. You always wonder why are pleas accepted? Why, you know, because we know that if we took this to trial, we could get a whole lot more time. Maybe even the death penalty, or, or, or we we don't know what. And so the 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 risk of the unknown is is oftentimes what drives a plea, and it drives a plea from both sides because uh, you know he he may not want to take his chances in a court uh, once that the facts of this case come out. And the reality is he doesn't know what we know. We don't, we're not required to disclose that. So, mm-hmm. so he's not sure what, what the police are coming at him with or the Commonwealth office is going to be coming at him with. And so he does take uh, a plea. Now, it, it's really important to know that most of the time when someone has a family member that, that is killed at the hands of another people want to know why or people want to know how or people they have lots of questions Mm -hmm. and so i think that in this particular case it's a big deal to find out what happened because if if you think what we are up to at this point in time all that we have left of carol neal is part of her skull and and the rest of her has never been found even to this day so there's a lot of questions there so as part of his plea deal uh, he got a reduced sentence from murder to first degree manslaughter, first degree bail jumping on some cases that are unrelated that happened in another county and flagrant non-support. But as part of his plea, he had to, in court, say why he killed Carol Neal. Yes. And so his statement in court was that he went to his wife's house on November the 10th in 1998 to discuss their pending divorce and child support cases. 
Now we know that they were scheduled to be in court on the 12th, mm -hmm. um, but this is on the 10th. Leland Neal says the two of them got into an argument that led to a physical altercation that resulted in Carol Neal's death. Now, tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, Ronnie, because I, I, when I was looking into this, they got into an argument about her seeing someone else. Yeah, that that came in that came into play uh, actually more than once uh, because uh, uh, Leland had had learned uh, of Tony Sawyer, told. Mm -hmm and confronted Carol, told her that he knew about him and uh, that, that he knew it was more than friends. He said he had sources, that it was, that they were more than friends, but there was really no evidence ever to, to suggest anything other than that. But yeah, they, that came up and was uh, in, in Leland's mind, I'm sure was very important. So Leland has uh, been in prison now since 2016. He will be in prison. Uh, is there a possibility of parole? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question, and and obviously we're we're not consulted about that, and mm -hmm. and so you know I, I don't know how things will go and uh, what will happen at this point in time. Obviously, the family and 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 anyone related associated with this case would hope uh, that not that that there would never be a chance that that he would see the outside world again. Ronnie, earlier you mentioned in Tony's case that Leland actually served as a witness was that as a witness for the prosecution to like confirm about the evidence tampering or yeah that's an that's an interesting point because i would love to go and read the entire transcript of that trial it would take a long time to do that but i, I really wonder what they were trying to do because quite frankly i think that there was some insinuation that maybe you did this and, and maybe you need to try to answer some questions as to, first of all, how this blood got in this room that my, uh, that, that Tony Sawyer tampered with. And so I think that there was a lot of, uh, maybe we can go on a fact finding mission here in, in, in a court trial. And that, and lots of times in court cases, the court will hear something very minor, but they mm -hmm. will almost try you for murder in a, in a, in a case. So, in a, in a courtroom. So yeah, there was lots of questions asked about this. And I think those were just fact-finding missions. You get somebody under oath, it's always an opportunity to learn something. Exactly. It's either you're going to learn something or you're going to, uh, they're going to perjure themselves. It's something that you learned later. So so those those statements are remembered. And of course, they're memorialized in video and uh, written both. So they're, they're kept even that he would have to answer for those statements again in another trial. Ronnie, why did Tony feel the need to walk into this scene and spend almost two hours cleaning this, what we now know as a crime scene? So much, in, in fact, that when police arrived, shortly after police arrived, a Stanley Steamer truck showed up because they were gonna clean the carpets. Yeah, we're, we arrived on the scene to take this missing persons report and, and walk into what we quickly realized is uh, a very bad crime scene. In fact, that we, we found bone fragments and parts of teeth uh, later on, uh, that it didn't take very long to find those to be able to see that that was in this scene as well. And while we're standing there, hadn't been there very long, a Stanley Steamer truck pulls up and he's there to clean the carpet. And so he'd been called. So you back up and let's talk about the, the mentality of, of of Tony Sawyer, he was, 
he even called himself the kind of the clean guy that he was kind of a, a neat freak and um, other people around him would say the same thing that that he was constantly cleaning did not like to have things out of order and uh, really sort of uh, uh, said that he he had OCD and couldn't handle messes and so in his mind uh, that's what this was this was a mess he needed to clean it up and that's what he was set out to do and so getting it cleaned up was his priority not believing that he was standing in the middle of a crime scene even to the point that you know proof of this is we've got to figure out well is that real i mean is is that really what he's trying to do but uh, we talked to people that were uh, in charge of him while he was in jail and they said that while in jail he was cleaning corners that had never seen the light of day uh, he was cleaning them with a toothbrush they said that if we let him clean all of the time he would he would absolutely clean every minute of every day so October is uh, National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And after researching this case, Carol actually had made a couple of calls against Leland and even had filed a domestic violence order against Leland. And it is tragic and so important that people realize that there is an opportunity for help. The numbers are staggering, even in 1998, uh, there were about 1 million violent crimes that were committed against people by their current or former spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends. In 1998, women were nearly three out of four victims in the 1,830 murders attributed to intimate partners. Which I know Bowling Green, we are a smaller community, but it happened here. Yes, we're, we're, not, we're not immune to it. And you can't, you, know, you can't for one minute believe that no matter where you live, uh, that, that, that this isn't happening. And um, something that is so important is to, because at the end of this case, what, what, what we found was that people were coming forward saying, gosh, I knew that they were having problems. I knew that, you know, she had confided in me that, that he at one point in time uh, knocked her down during a fight and she broke her foot. And another time she had a black eye. And, and so the, all of the things were happening, but, she was denying them as well, but uh, outside people looking in could see easily that you know, this is domestic violence and no one wants to ever believe that it's gonna turn or come to this. But the truth of it is this all happened inside of a year. I mean, it, it, this, this developed, escalated and ended so quickly, all in the same calendar year and, and that's scary. Ronnie, what would you say to someone who is in a situation and I know that you've gone out on calls and you've seen evidence, but without that person wanting to initiate charges, you can't do much. What would you say to someone that is in a situation and they're terrified and they don't know what to do? Um, it is like telling a person who's, who's literally floating in the middle of the ocean that there is land nearby. They can't see it. They can't believe it. And you talk to people who are in tumultuous relationships and you say, get help, get out, talk to a friend, figure out something to do. We'll help you. They can't see it. They just can't see beyond the situation that they're in. One, they love the person, right? They wouldn't be in the relationship if they didn't love this person. Two, maybe there's a financial 
uh, portion of this that they can't make it on their own without this person providing a living for them. Three, it's moral support. This is a person that they have no one else and this is someone that they uh, are in a relationship with, albeit a terrible relationship and a dangerous relationship, but they just can't find their way out and they can't find or figure out how they're going to get help. They can't see themselves in any other way except the relationship that they're trapped in now. If they call you and they are terrified, but they need help, how can they, even if that person is standing right next to them, how could they tell you without endangering themselves? Well, I'm going to tell you, um, being a police officer, uh, we can, we can almost walk into a domestic violence scene and look around and figure out what happened and nobody even has to say. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the truth. You can just because of having dealt with it so many times, uh, you know, you, you look around and you say, okay, these things are broken. This, she has these injuries or he has these injuries. I pretty much can figure out what went on here. And so uh, one of the very first things that we do as police officers, we walk into a, uh, we call it a family disturbance or domestic violence. Uh, uh, we, we separate the people. And I mean, when we talk about separating where they can't hear or see each other mm -hmm. and, and we put one officer with one and one officer with the other, and then you get those stories of what happened. And then you trade the two officers switch people and then they get the story again. And then the two officers come together and say, what happened? And uh, if the stories don't line up, we go back to work again and we start trying to figure out um, what, what, what actually took place. And to go back a little bit to say, uh, what do you tell someone? I have, I have begged people, uh, please go, please leave, please stop this. And, and there are places that we can direct you to that will give you immediate help and solve this problem right now. And, um, yeah, and I know friends of these people have done the same thing. It's heart wrenching mm -hmm. to see that you, you want to be about this because it's clear as day to you as a friend, it's clear as day uh, to a police officer, but to someone who's trapped in it, they can't, they just can't find their way out. And no victim blaming, because if you've been in that situation, like you said, you do feel helpless. You do feel hopeless. I guess all we can do is keep encouraging. Yes. There, you, you cannot look at a person and say, this is your fault, you know, because there's no difference in the domestic violence that they just experienced. And then you standing there telling them that this is their fault, because then all that does is makes the, the, the violence for them meaningful to the point that they feel like it is justified towards them. Mm -hmm. And so that's the very last thing that we want people to believe is that one, you deserve this and two, that you have to take it. And, and neither of those are true. And so uh, to try to get through to people to say, you know, you need to, there is another way. There is a better way. We can help you. Just let me help you. Uh, but, but you were right to say that, that sometimes people don't, don't want out. They don't want help. And, and to force people, you, you can't do that. The law just doesn't, the law allows you to, 
to help, but only to a certain extent. And at some point in time, they have to be uh, the victim. And sometimes people don't want to be victims. And I think that's from an outsider's perspective, the metaphor that you used of somebody trapped in the ocean, surrounded by water and telling them there's land nearby. That is a very powerful visual to understand, or at least have some empathetic touch point um, that I think that was just a really powerful, well-placed metaphor because it gave me an entirely new perspective. Yeah. yeah. Ronnie, I know we have several people willfully that listen, but there's people all over that listen. So I want to give out the 800 number for the uh, National Domestic Violence Hotline. Uh, the website is thehotline.org. It's 800-799-SAFE, which is 7233. And I know a lot of times people are afraid to even look up help because of search histories. But the beautiful thing about this website is they have a giant X where you can hit escape and they do as much as possible to keep that website out of your search history. So you can log on and research and try to get help. Again, it's thehotline.org or 800-799-SAFE. Those are great websites and, and numbers to go to because a lot of times when the police show up, it's, it's, it, it's really ugly. It's already ugly. And people feel like, you know, well, who called the police? And, and there's going to be trouble after the police leave and you better tell them. So if we're not involved, mm -hmm. uh, you can go search for that help on your own. But don't ever think that that's where you, you can go to to be safe. We can help you be safe. And, and so, yes, calling that hotline, absolutely. If you can, if that's what you feel like is going to help you through, do that. If you need the police, call the police. Even if it's just the non-emergency number or you drive down the street and you see a police officer and just some way let them know I, I'm, I'm in a bad situation. Just reaching out makes a big difference. Well, Ronnie, we have thoroughly enjoyed having you on tonight. We thank you for, for joining us. This case was, I mean, this was a wild ride because it, it was a span of what, 15 years? Yeah, it took a long time. It, it's one that, that you look at and you say, well, we know who did this. Is this thing ever going to be solved? And, you know, well, do you really know who did it? I mean, mm -hmm. is, did you put the guy in prison for one other charge and he needs to go back for another one? I mean, you know, it, it was, you could have, you could have flipped a coin halfway through this thing and probably been right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ronnie, we hope you'll come back and join us again. I know Ash love to. is really satisfied because he likes when we have a good conclusion on a case. I need closure. Yeah. Lots of people need closure. You need to, you know, people need to learn what happened. Yeah. So yeah, this, this is a good case for that. Well, Ronnie, we thank you so much. And, uh, well, I would say I'll be seeing you around, but you know, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I'll email you around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. Thanks, Ronnie. Yep. See you guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode of A-Side B-Side podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, we'd appreciate it if you'd head on over to Apple and leave us a rating or a review and make sure you come back next Friday for another episode.
As always, thank you for listening to A-Side, B-Side podcast. If you enjoy the show, please, if you don't mind, head on over to Apple and leave us a rating or a review. And if you'd like to continue to support the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Patreon or you can buy us a coffee, as well as buying merch on our website, asidebsidepodcast.square.site. From Adam and I at A-Side, B-Side podcast, please remember to wear your mask, social distance if you're around people that don't live in your household, and just be safe and happy. Thanks again from us here at A-Side, B-Side podcast.